Hey guys, welcome to episode 14 of the Jayzilla Podcast. I'm your host, Gino Manley, and before we get started tonight, welcome to 2020, and from Rick and I, Happy New Year. Now, our first episode of the decade is one I think you guys will really enjoy. He's a, he's a guest that uh, his name kept coming up over and over again in all the previous podcasts. If you read the Jayzilla Lounge on Facebook, his name always pops up on there as somebody we should get. And finally, everyone's schedule online. And he was able to meet us at the Atlanta studio, which is just Rick's basement, and uh, sit down, give us about an hour and a half of his time for an interview. And uh, you learn a lot about his Jayzilla history, his incredible fleet of cars that he has owned and um, currently owns, and a lot about some cool stories. And, and I think you guys will really enjoy this one. His name is Mr. Nick Thompson. Again, he's a Jayzilla rock star. A lot of people know him because he's a, a huge figure in the garage. Super cool guy, really good personality, always willing to help people. Uh, I didn't know him that well, but I got to spend a lot of time with him at Charlotte, and I became a Nick Thompson fan and a, and a Nick Thompson friend. So I'm I'm pumped up for you guys to hear this one, and uh, we'll jump right in. And I hope you guys sit back, relax, and enjoy episode number 14, an interview with Mr. Nick Thompson. The Jayzilla Podcast with Rick and Gino. Hey guys, welcome to episode 14 of the Jayzilla podcast. This is the first one in 2020, so uh, we've made some audio upgrades, so hopefully you guys will notice them. So all last year, we kept getting requests after requests for a certain name, and finally, after millions of dollars of royalties, huge contract negotiations, we finally got him on. Tonight, our guest is Mr. Nick Thompson. As everyone has requested, he's finally here with us. He's actually in the Atlanta studio which I think is actually just Rick's basement. Uh, but nevertheless, we're, he's here with us tonight. But before we get started, Rick, how are things up in Atlanta tonight in 2020? Man, it's the first podcast of the new year, and we're excited to do this. Hopefully everybody hears the upgrades. Well, hopefully so. Mr. Nick Thompson, I don't know how much we paid you. It was probably too much. But uh, how are you doing tonight up there in, in, in uh, Rick's uh, basement studio? I am doing great, Gino. It is good to be here. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Well, the reason why you're here is you can look at the chat group, you can look at Facebook, I've gotten messages, everyone wants you to be on. Uh, so you're some type of Jayzilla superstar for reasons that uh, I hope you explain tonight. But um, so I've known you for probably about a year, but you know, again, I don't know you as well as, uh, as some other guys as well as I know Rick. I, I kind of know you through him. We got to bond pretty cool at Charlotte this year. And um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from and, and where you're based out of and just give us a little quick Nick bio. Yeah, um, born and raised in Nashville, Tennessee. I've been playing with cars since I was tiny, man. It's just one of those things. I think the more and more you talk to car guys, you realize there's just something in our blood that has drawn us to cars. My brother is the same way. We watched every car TV show, Dukes of Hazard, Magnum PI, uh, Knight Rider. I mean, we just couldn't get enough. 
of cars, man. I got a subscription to Motor Trend when I was seven years old. My brother got car and driver. We would swap magazines. So yeah, car, cars have been an interest for a very long time for me. Um, you, you know, my first car, I grew, I uh, got a job scooping ice cream at Baskin Robbins when I was 14, making like three or four bucks an hour. After two years, I had managed to save $900, which made a hefty down payment on a 1985 Saab 900 that probably had about 100 horsepower, but was a good place to start. Probably uh, just as much horsepower as I needed uh, to not get myself in trouble. Anyway, I've been in Atlanta since 2003. I work for the Home Depot, the largest home improvement chain in the United States, uh, probably in the world, actually. And uh, man, you know, I am a, I'm a family man, just like Rick here. I have a six-year-old son and an awesome wife named Darian. And my third priority behind family and work is uh, is playing with cars. So you, you mentioned playing with cars. So obviously everyone that knows you knows you're a hell of a driver, um, and, and everyone will say that. So my question is, how did you kind of get into track day stuff and, and motorsport in general? Um, where did you kind of hone your skills? Did you do a racing school? So tell us a little about your actual driving background. Yeah, sure thing. So I graduated college in 1999 from the University of Tennessee, Moved back to Nashville and a couple people told me about autocross. And I thought, man, this sounds like something really cool that I should try. So I went to maybe two or three events, just watched, kind of got the lay of the land. And, um, you know, eventually decided to try my hand at autocross. Started out in my 1997 Toyota Supra Turbo. Thought I would destroy everybody. Quickly got my butt handed to me by the likes of little 84 CRX HFs on 13x9s. And lo and behold, Miatas and all sorts of other cars that at the time, I just didn't realize just how capable those cars were. So did autocross for a couple years. Um, did my first track day in 2004. At that point, I was daily driving a 1997 M3 Coupe. And the organization that I did the track day with was the Music City Mustang Club. They used to do two events a year. They would do a Memorial Day event at the Nashville Super Speedway and a Labor Day event, two-day events. And so I would go up there for both of those. So really, I was only doing four track days a year, probably for that first, like, maybe two or three years. And then just started to branch out. I mean, when I was um, being in Atlanta, that was before Atlanta Motorsports Park existed I'd go to a little tally. Um, you know, I'm one of the Jayzilla OGs. We can talk about that a little bit more later, but uh, have been doing Jayzilla events since the very, very beginning. And, you know, in peak years, I've probably done 15 to 20 days a year. Um, more recently, that slowed down a little bit. Family life uh, will uh, definitely make that more challenging. Um, but, you know, I feel fortunate just to be out there every day I'm out there. Probably got in close to 10 days this year. That was plenty. Um, to me, it's more about the quality of the days than the quantity of the days. I start every year by filling up my calendar with as many Jayzilla events as I can. And then if I have a need above and beyond that, I'll go do something with another track day group. But that's kind of where I am now. No formal coaching, really. You know, that's one thing that I think was a major miss. And it's advice that I give to new drivers is, you know, I never had a right seat coach, really, for my early track days. I think I, I, think I thought as an autocrosser, that I already knew everything that I needed to know about car control. That could not have been further from the truth. And so, you know, to anybody out there, even people that are experienced, like you always learn something from having somebody in the right seat. 
Um, they always see things a little bit differently than you do. I'm just amazed that regardless of the level of experience, you get somebody in that right seat and all of a sudden things look a little bit different and you learn something new about your driving and potentially you find some time. So let me just kind of jump in there and, and talk about that just a little bit. So um, uh, we're going to talk about your immense car collection and cars that you've owned here in a second. But um, I asked this to Patrick Doherty on his episode, um, what's your driving style? How, how would you describe Nick as a, as a, as a, as a driver? <laughs> I think it was on Jack Fu's episode. You, you said that I was out of control, which I wholly refute. I'm, I'm actually, I think, a pretty conservative driver as measured by number of two-offs, number of four-offs, number of spins. Like, that's just not me. Like, I feel like, you know, if I was going to sum up my driving style, I feel like I'm a nine-tenths guy. I mean, especially after having a kid, that changed my perspective on things a little bit. That willingness to go find another tenth of a second is a lot lower than it used to be. So I'll say I, I think I'm a I think I'm a nine tenths driver. That would that'd be how I would, would describe myself. Now having raced next to you and <laughs> ridden with you, I'm going to go with you're slightly more in control than Patrick, and we're not going to put a number on that. But yeah. slightly more in control, a, a little bit less angle, and a little bit less yaw, and a little bit less tire squeeze uh, squeal than Patrick. Well, just you know, in Gina's book, anything near Patrick is out of control. <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I think um, you know. Let me kind of just uh, jump on that a little bit. And that, that's kind of interesting because I think most everyone we've had on has, um, and we could probably make a whole episode about this. Kind of moving on the family life and how it kind of affects the hobby. Um, and I'm, I'll ask both of you guys this: um, Does having a family affect um, how you guys are out there when you guys are having fun? Is that in the back of your mind and um, and I'll expand that a little bit too. Um, like I know with you, Rick, going wanting to go more into the wheel to wheel motorsport world, does that does that bother you at all? I mean, I think that's something that's that's important to explore. Well, Nick brought it up, so why don't you take it first? You know, for me, it doesn't impact my willingness to be out there because ultimately, I feel that what we do is incredibly safe, particularly in the Jayzilla organization. The focus on safety over the past two years has been fantastic. Um, you know, for me, it was probably an increased willingness to spend the money on safety equipment. It's probably an increased willingness to replace that wheel hub a little bit sooner. I mean, that's really where it's in the back of my mind, Gino, is, you know, it was it was after my son was born that I bought a racing suit. I bought a Hans. I bought a better helmet, um, put window nets in the car. I wear arm restraints. Like, that's what changed for me was if there was something out there that was available, regardless of the expense, I was willing to make that. But at the end of the day, I mean, I still feel confidently that what we do on the track is 10 times safer than the average risk you face on the street every day. Definitely. And to tag onto that, so I experienced the same thing. I had a kid about the same time Nick did, and we both started buying safety gear. You know, all of a sudden, a Hans didn't seem all that expensive. You know, all of a sudden, a racing suit seemed like something that was worth tolerating. And... That was definitely true for me, um, and I continue to feel that it is a very safe hobby. Why not protect yourself against some things that could go wrong? Um, part of that's advancing in life, too. You know, as a career, time off from work would cost us both more money now than it used to, and it's worth having this safety net. But for me, I, I will say it did change a couple of things for me. I loved, uh, I loved some of the cars that I had and some of the setups I had, but they weren't as safe. You know, I, I find myself looking at caged Miatas instead of just a roll bar. Um, I, I've realized that 
as Nick said, I'm not as willing to go chase that last tenth. I know I can stay flat there, but is it really worth it? Now, by the end of the night at Charlotte, it, it was worth it, and I'd paid up my life insurance. But, um, you know, that really does go through your mind, and, and you make somewhat more conservative decisions. But fortunately for both of us, and I can speak for Nick because I've raced with him and seen his times, the times continue to drop. The skill increases uh, faster than that reluctance to go after the next little bit. And that's probably why we've had such safety at the Jayzilla events is as a whole, our community has focused on staying within their limits, even as those limits increase. Yeah, so I like both of those answers. So let me uh, switch it up a little bit. Um, both of you guys have young kids now. Um, would you ever introduce them to the sport, whether it's karting or um, I think all of them have a couple years, uh, probably three, four, five years before this is, becomes a, a real deal. But uh, from the parents' perspective, would you guys introduce them to the hobby young? I, I, you know, I still haven't made up my mind on that yet, Gino. You know, sometimes I think I wouldn't wish this hobby on my worst enemy. Like It's expensive. It's time consuming. It's just like to some degree it takes over. But, you know, that's the passion. Like, that's what I'm passionate about. It's what I said earlier. Like, it is in your blood. I couldn't not do this. It would crush me not to be able to do this in some capacity and, and, you know, it's the driving is only half of it. It's the camaraderie. It's the relationships. Like, my life is filled up with, you, you know, the Jay Zilla family to some degree. So many good friends. I'm trading 100 messages a day with Rick, Stu Biggs, Mike DeLauder, uh, Chris Peters, and Sean. I mean, we're just like, we're just back and forth all day. And just, I, I get so much um, satisfaction and just like, we have so many laughs. And, and it's all driven out of this hobby, but it has totally transcended the hobby, you know, to a point that, you know, it's, it's kind of like, it's not about the cars, man. It's about the people. So, you know, back to what I want to introduce my kid to this, I want to make sure he finds something that he is as passionate about as I am about cars. And I would hate to think that I influenced him to make that thing be cars. If he wants it to be cars, that's fantastic. I would love to share this hobby with him. For the time being, it looks like Fortnite is his only interest. He's playing like hours and hours a day, but that's another story. But hey, you know what? He's six years old. There's still hope. He's already got a Porsche 911 GT3 in the garage. Power wheels, does about four miles per hour. Uh, but you know, we all got to start somewhere. I would have loved to have that when I was six years old. I think he's ridden it twice, but again, there's still there's still hope. So Rick, what about you? Would you introduce your kids to these, this, uh, this sport? Man, I, I'm already in trouble. Um, I've got a picture of my daughter at 18 months turning a wrench on the Miata. When I was building the Exocet, she actually sat in the garage and learned how to use a ratchet and tighten bolts on an Exocet. Fortunately, it didn't fall apart. Um, <laughs> but I'm lucky. I'm in the same boat as you. We've got a, a Mustang police car, uh, power wheels in the garage, and it's been driven three times. So I'm not sure. But I think about, you know, if you get your kids involved in racing, they'll never have time or money for drugs or running around with boys and girls or, or whatever else they might get into. All they'll be able to do is do cars. So it's a, it's a trade-off. And like you, my best friends have come from this community. I mean, there, there's the experiences we've had over the last what, almost 10 years. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Mm -hmm. um, there's, there's no other way to phrase it. And um, I wouldn't trade that part for the world. So in terms of my kids, I hope they find a community that's as much fun and it's full of great people who care about the other people in the community and are willing to do anything for them. 
um, you know, that's the most important part. So we'll kind of roll forward a little bit. Before I do this, just consider this, it, it just turned 2020. So in 10 years, Nick, your son will be 16 and, 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 and Rick, all your kids will be growing up. So, you know, these guys, these guys might be the next Jay Zilla wave. So, uh, something kind of cool to think about, but, uh, moving on here. So, you know, Nick, I, and this is a huge compliment. You age like really well because I never had any idea how old you are. I always thought you were probably like in your mid to late twenties. And I was on Facebook and I saw this picture from the nineties of you picking up the super. And I was like, this is not the same guy. I've friended the wrong guy. And so, you know, so you age extremely well, but that kind of wants me to open the next one. Let's talk about cars. Um, obviously there's people that have said that you own cars that they never even knew about. And like, they just keep on coming. Um, in the short 15 minutes we've been talking, you mentioned Saab, Supra, M3, you know, Exo uh, sets, things like that. So what's in the current fleet? What have you owned? Let's talk a little bit about cars. And I think this will be a fun little conversation. Yes, sir. I'm going to go in chronological order. Um, starting with a car that I bought 20 years ago, I had, the um, unique pleasure of being able to get my dream car at a really young age. And that happened through a series of crazy events that I'll stay pretty brief on. But in, in college, I bought a 1990 Toyota Supra and it was not the car I wanted, but it was the one that I could afford. It was the non-turbo version. It didn't have the target top. It was white over red. It was, you know, it was a car. It was a solid car. Again, it was probably as much horsepower as, as I needed at that point. But it wasn't the dream car. The dream car, of course, was the fourth generation Supra, um, which, you know, at that point was still a rel- relatively new car and was out of reach for me. Um, a friend of mine graduated college a year ahead of me and went to go work for Toyota North America in Torrance, California. And just on a whim, I said, hey, man, see if they have any employee discounts, you know, like half joking. And I'll, I'll like I'll never forget. I get this voicemail back like two weeks later. And this guy says, hey, man, yeah, we uh, we actually do. There's an employee pool of cars. They go out on executive lease for two years. And then they come back. They all have around 20,000 miles. He said, there's only one Supra. I don't know if you're going to want it. And I'm thinking, oh, man, like it could be the non-turbo. It could be automatic. It could be a bad color. And he just starts running down the line. He's like, oh, it's silver. I was like, oh, that's that's good. And this is 99. That was like the hot color, he goes, it's uh, it's manual transmission. I was like, okay, that's, you know, we're getting there. It's turbo, it's Targa, 25,000 miles in the clincher, $26,500, which like at that point was crazy. I mean, like that car would have been worth 35 maybe on the street, but with that employee discount, it got it down to like, yeah, like 26.5. The only catch, which, you know, depending on how you look at it, could have been a good thing or a bad thing. The car was in California. I was in Atlanta and I had to go get it. But as you well know, the first thing that you want to do when you get a new car is you want to drive it about 2,000 miles. And so my brother took a Greyhound down here. We jumped on a plane. Uh, We flew to California. We picked it up and we drove it back over three glorious and incredibly memorable days. So that, you know, that's kind of been the centerpiece of my car collection for a long time, um, you know, for several years because it was my only car. Um, but it's, you know, it's the one that I plan to never sell and, you know, hope to pass the keys down to my son when he is of an age where he can appreciate and responsibly own and drive that car. So yeah, I've still got that car. 
it's stock, you know, it's never been modified. It's just kind of a really clean example that's always been in the garage. So that's, that's number one. When uh, has it been autocrossed or tracked? It's been, <laughs> it's been autocrossed. I did. Yeah. So I mentioned that was my first autocross car. So I can't lie about that. If any future buyers out there that I'm trying to sell this car to in the year, like 2050, yes, it's been autocrossed. I'm, you know, I, I got to come clean about that. It had never been tracked until last year. I got a call from Continental Tires and they said, Hey, um, you know, we understand you like sports cars. We want to go out to a racetrack with you and we want you to turn laps on a privately rented track. And by the way, we're going to bring along Rutledge Wood and he's going to ride with you and you guys are just going to have a great time. Are you interested? And I said, yeah, that's like, sounds awesome. Of course I'm interested. And so we did exactly that. They, um, Continental showed up at my house with a camera crew. We walked around. We talked about all the cars. I had no idea what a big Toyota guy Rutledge is. He loves Toyotas, man. He had just he had just acquired a Mark IV Supra. He uh, I had the ISF at that point. He had had I think he had just gotten rid of a GSF. Said he had been on the hunt for an ISF, but he couldn't find a clean one. Um, but yeah, we were man, we were just growing out, man. We're like kindred spirits. We go down to my basement garage. And he sees my bike. I bought this bike like a decade ago. It was my dream bike when I was growing up. It is a bright purple 1987 GT Performer. And he looks at that thing and he says, is that a 1987 GT Performer? I was like, dude, yes. Like, it was like we were separated at birth, man. The guy is super cool. So, yeah, we uh, we did. They rented Amp for us. We went out there. We had the track to ourselves for a couple hours. There was a light mist, which made things a little bit more interesting. You know, here I am out there in my dream car that I hope to own forever. And we're like getting a little sideways and Rut's getting nervous. And he's saying, don't wreck, man. Like, I can't have this on my conscience. And we made a video. It was really cool. It was called For What You Do. And it's a series that Continental has done where they go out and talk to different drivers that use Continental tires for, you know, off-roading or just regular street driving or in my case, track driving. And they just talk about, you know, the experience and kind of, you know, some of the enthusiasts that are out there. So there's a video clip out there. If you go search on YouTube, I think you can type in Continental for what you do, sports car collector. And you'll see my silly face out the with uh, Rutledge in the passenger seat. So as the sports car collector, what are some of the other highlights that have been in this collection? Well, yeah, it's, well, so I, I never finished. the. I'll, I'll, let me let me tell you, I'll tell you the cars that I that I own currently after the Supra. Um, I bought a Miata about, I guess it's been 12 years ago. Yeah, I bought that car. I was looking for a set of RPF ones on eBay and I found a Miata that was sitting on RPF ones. And I thought, oh man, that looks pretty nice. I mean, it had a hard top and had a roll bar, harnesses, intake header exhaust, decent suspension. I mean, it was kind of like a ready to go track build. And it was like four grand. So I flew out to Little Rock. You'll see that's a common theme in my car collection is always getting on a plane or taking a Greyhound usually proceeds a car purchase. Um, yeah, and I drove that car back, and man, over 12 years, I just have had so much fun in that car. It's gone through so many different iterations. It was a flat black, non-turbo gutted car. Um, I added a turbo within maybe the first two years. I painted it this uh, Porsche main color, which is fairly polarizing. It's kind of a love it or hate it, but y y you know, you'll definitely notice it kind of color. And I've just had fun just kind of iterating on the car and, you know, taking it into different tracks, made a lot of memories in that car. I think that's the car a lot of people associate me with. So I've had that car for, you know, kind of a long time. 
I've had a lot of other Miatas that have come and gone. Um, most of those have all now gone. Except for another car that I bought in 2015 as a donor. I picked up a wrecked Miata for $1,500. And um, I didn't know what I was going to do with it. But, you know, I thought I was going to do... I wanted to do something simple and lightweight. I thought about an Exoset. Um, but eventually I settled on doing a build called a Salvage One Eliminator, which... Um, a lot of people aren't familiar with, certainly not as many people as are familiar with the Exosets. There's a lot more Exosets that are out there. And Kevin and those guys are the hometown team. They're awesome. Um, they built a great car. Um, the Eliminator guys was a smaller outfit out of Alabama, no longer really in production. There's one car remaining to be built. That will be the eighth Eliminator. There's one other local Eliminator belonging to my friend Casey Foster. Um, but, you know, we've got a tight-knit little group of Eliminator owners. We go out, we have fun. Uh, we all jumped in on the ExoFest last year and went out and turned laps. Those guys are fellow lightweight brethren. Um, you know, it's cool to see different interpretations of kind of the same ideology, the same less is more, simplify and add lightness kind of uh, kind of methodology. But yeah, the Eliminator has been great fun. For the past four years, I have alternated between that car and the green Miata. And driving both gives me an appreciation for the other. You know, the, the full-body car has a lot more power. It has better aero. But the Eliminator just does, like, unbelievable things at amp, as you well remember, Rick, and your exo said. You're tossing around, you know, 15, 1,600 pounds. You can just do superhuman things. Like, you cannot break at places where you would always have to break. You can carry speed um, at ungodly levels through corners, you can break later than your brain will even ever want to let you. I had to retrain my brain just to drive that car because it allowed me to do things so differently, um, which makes it actually a challenge to jump back in the full body car. It weighs about 500 pounds more. Um, so you definitely have to readjust everything, your turning point, your braking points. Um, everything's a little bit different in that car. So that's my second track car. Um, this summer, I let go of what I would call track car number three which was kind of a neat car, but, um, you know, a little bit excessive to own and maintain three track cars, um, was sort of starting to run out of space, but that car was, it was a unique car. It was a neat find, picked it up on bring a trailer. It was a started life as a Thunder Roadster, which if you're not familiar with a Thunder Roadster is sort of like a long wheelbase legends car, which is a motorcycle powered sequential transmission, lightweight, just fun, really simple, um, easy to drive car, but a guy named Doug Crawford up in Kentucky sort of took on this multi-year project to really make this car his own. And he fully rebodied the thing. I'm like, how did you learn how to do this? I mean, he built this beautiful sort of 50s sports racer, almost like Ferrari, it's Cetterini-inspired build. Like if you saw the Jayzilla Friendsgiving poster, James was kind enough to use that car as its poster child. It's red round headlights, just like kind of a very old school kind of sports racer look to it. And that car was a blast, picked it up on Bring a Trailer, drove it hard for a full year, um, made some good memories in that car. And then um, a few months ago, sold it to a gentleman in Florida that I hope is somewhere on a track enjoying it this weekend. So yeah, anyway, that car is gone now. And then the day after Christmas last year, I hopped on a plane, this time southbound, went to Miami, and I bought a 2012 911. Um, that's the first year of the 991. It's racing yellow. It's obnoxious. It's like you love it or hate it. Showed a picture of it to my wife when I wanted to buy it. She said, no, absolutely not. It's so ugly. That color, it really cheapens the car. And she was just like, 
I mean, it was like no go. So I kind of like went away with my tail between my legs. Two days later, she's like, yeah, let me see those pictures again. She like, she came around. So, you know, God bless her. She, uh, she said, go get it. And, uh, I did. I didn't waste any time. I jumped on a plane the day after Christmas, drove it back, had a blast. Um, the only person I think that loves that car more than I do is, is my wife who drives it. Um, I got to say, you know, probably as much as I do every time I go to get in at the seats pushed all the way forward. And I'm like, you go girl. Like, you know, she's out there driving around in a, in a yellow 911 manual. And I just, I mean, I love that she can even drive a, a, a manual transmission car. So that's cool. It's been a source of bonding for us. I, uh, I sold that Lexus ISF that I had just, you know, I mean, to, to sort of, to buy that car. And she loved the ISF, man. She would get into, I think that's a grunt, man. She would use every bit of the 400 horsepower that car made. So I felt a little bit guilty selling that car because she was so attached to it. Um, but it's a, dist- it's a distant memory in the rearview mirror now. She's, I think she's digging the 911 even more. So that's it, man. That's the, that's the fleet. I and mean, we have two boring daily drivers. Um, Toyota products, of course, um, you know, high quality stuff there, but, um, no, that's, that's, that's kind of it. There've been a lot of other cars that have come and gone over the years, but that's where we are right now. Well, we got to shape up your timeline just a little bit further. Yeah. So who owned a lightweight Miata just before you did? Let's see. Yeah. Well, and, and who owned a yeah. Porsche 911 just before you I, did? I, I got to give a shout out to the guy sitting across from me because, no, this has been more than just those occasions. I I um, I was definitely eyeballing the 991. And I kind of told my brother, I said, hey, man, here's he's a big Porsche guy. And I said, here's about what I'm willing to pay. And, you know, let me know when you start to see deals in this region. In between then and when I bought my car, Rick went out, flew to Texas, I think it was, and came back with like a stunning, stunning 991, aqua blue, PDK. His was an S. It was it was sexy, man. That car was unbelievable. So yeah, that was probably maybe two months before I got mine. So Rick definitely got there first. So I bit his style on that. But, you know, I'll, I'll go on record as saying that I had been kind of in the market. I'll tell you the other car that we bought, which was totally Rick influenced, which I was not in the market for, was a couple of years ago, Eric Ferris was selling his track Miata for like four grand. It had all these great parts, Zetas, and just a bunch of good stuff, things that I wanted for my car. And um, my truck had broken down at NCM, so I didn't have a truck. And I was texting with Rick and the other guys. I said, man, I really want to go get Eric's car because I want all the parts off of it, but I don't have a truck. And Rick said, hey, drive over to my house, leave your ISF, you take my truck and go get that damn car. And so I didn't waste any time, man. That's exactly what we did. I came over here, I got your truck, I went and got Eric's car. And I'll tell you the first five miles on that Sequoia, I thought, I hate this thing, man. We had had a first gen Sequoia and I thought, this thing is too wide and too huge. And the center console on that thing is ridiculous. Like if anybody's never been in a second gen Sequoia, there's a spot for hanging files. Like you have like almost a filing cabinet in your center console. You can store a baby in there you if can, you're traveling. <laughs> if you have that seat. need, yeah. you can put a baby in there. The first five miles, I hated that car. The next five miles, I warmed up to it. And like, you know, after driving about 100 miles in that truck, I thought we had to have one. And then a couple months later, yeah, we did. I sold that LX470 that left me stranded at NCM. And dragged a, a Sequoia, which is actually sitting in your driveway right now, so next to your other Sequoia. So yeah, I've I've copied Rick, and then Rick did build his Exocet just before I built my Eliminator. So credit to Rick; he has definitely um, you know been a good car bro 
for me and we've explored this world together. And in several cases, he's definitely inspired me to move forward on a purchase. So and thank it, you, Rick. And it was nearly Nick's fault that I almost owned an ISF. There I went go. shopping as soon as he <laughs> left that car in my driveway. Well, I look forward to continuing to do this, which is we'll let each other be the guinea pig, go buy cars, and if it works out, the other one goes. Yeah. But before we move on from this car stable, there are you have a history of bad decisions at bad times on buying cars. The ISF was one of them. Yes. And I think there was a Lexus that was bought on eBay during a staff meeting. So between those two Toyota products, how did you come to own these cars? When do you make your decisions to buy cars? I, you know, I'm generally pretty disciplined, but you, you know, like you mentioned the staff meeting, that was the, that was the most recent purchase. I thought I was going to drive that 911 every day and I, I would do that. But I remember that's actually ties back to James when I first got the car. So I got it last December, probably two months later, I was like, I must've been driving home in the rain up 75 and James calls me, says, Hey man, I saw you drive it. You know, again, this thing is bright yellow. You can't miss it. And he said, ah, man, you're really going to drive that thing in the rain like that? And like just the tone of his voice made me feel like I was really just like doing a disservice to this car. And I thought, man, I need to go just like, I just need like the te- cheap daily driver. I've owned LS430s before. They're bulletproof cars. I jumped on eBay. I found one that looked really nice. It's like five grand by it now. I'm in staff meeting. And I mean, I really, I bought it like it was something off Amazon Prime. I'm like, yeah, just, you know, I'll just pick this thing up. And I figured worst case scenario, like even if it was in rough shape, like if the pictures were totally deceiving, it still wouldn't have been an awful purchase. And man, it showed off, came off the truck from Tampa and it was near flawless. And that car is super nice. So that was a good, that was a good buy. I think I missed one of the favorite cars along the way. And some people know this car. I did a couple of track days in this car. Before the ISF, I bought an IS300 that I found on Craigslist with an LS3 T56 swap. It had a cam, made 460 on the dyno. It was a total monster. That was such a wicked car. I did events that I think I did one day at AMP, one day at Road Atlanta, and one day at Little Talladega. And that was just such a beast, man. Such a fun car. So guys that have been around for a while, they might remember me in that car. As soon as you turn the key, that was a car that turned heads because it was just like, it was the most benign looking car. It's like a champagne colored IS300. It looks like a Corolla. And then you turn the key and you get 6.2 liters of growl coming out the relatively open exhaust. So yeah, that was that was one of my more memorable car acquisitions. And don't regret that one at all. I was not impulsive. I kept that car for five years, sold it for what I paid for it. Sold it to this dude in Ohio. He loves it. I keep up with him on Instagram. It's like, his baby, man. The paint on that car, the paint was like a nine and a half out of 10. First thing he did was repaint it so it would be flawless. So it's cool to see. I don't know if any other of you guys are like that, but like when you sell a car, like I care where it goes. I don't want it to just be like junked and screwed up. Like I love the idea of somebody taking a car and taking it to the next level and just doing all the things that maybe you didn't have the time to do. The guy I sold the ISF to as a detailer and like he just made it flawless. Like he's made this car perfect in ways that I just couldn't justify as a daily driver. So yeah, I, maybe I'm crazy. Every time I get access to like a free car, Carfax account, I have a list of all my old VINs and I run down through them just to see, are they still on the road? Are they getting emissions inspections? Like, are they even alive? And others, uh, you know, I'm able to find on Facebook and on Instagram and kind of keep up with that way. They're like, you know, they're like your children. It's kind of a weird, it's a weird attachment. They are. You're probably the first person I ever heard that had a LX470 breakdown, so that's kind of a an oddity because that's usually the uh, the most reliable car in the world. Uh, what's the one that got away? Is there one that you sold that you wish you, you didn't sell? 
Yeah, that's a good question, man. I'll tell you, if I had ever sold that Supra, I would be kicking myself, especially now, you know, the appreciation for the car, the value, you know, throw that out the window. To me, the value of, of a car is sort of a barometer for like, how cool do people think these cars are? I mean, look at the E30 M3s. I remember at one point when the E36 came out, everybody said the E30, oh, that's the bad one. It only has a four-cylinder the E36 makes more power. It's, you know, it's a, it's a better M car. And, you know, the E36 is a fantastic car. I had one. I'd love to have one again. Um, but, you know, time has told, you know, enthusiasts what they're willing to spend. I saw the motor out of an E30 M3 on Bring a Trailer the other day sold for 27000 bucks. I mean, it's just, you know, if that's not a barometer for how cool people think those cars are, I don't know what is. I mean, I would say if there was ever a car that I sold that I wish I didn't have to sell. It would be a toss-up between that IS300 and the Crawdini that I mentioned earlier. You know, because both of those are somewhat irreplaceable. I mean, they were fairly unique, one of a kind. There are some people that have done LS swaps into IS300s. The one that I had was built by the guy that developed the kit, dedicated motorsports, a guy named Matt Owen, who sort of pioneered um, all the LSX Lexus parts. So, you know, that was really hard to let go because it wasn't like you can just go buy another, right? Like when I sold the LX470, it's like, and I could jump on Craigslist and buy another one within a week, especially in Atlanta. But yeah, those two cars, like it was a tough decision. I thought for a really long time about the three track cars on which one that I was going to sell. And ultimately, you know, I think on just about every episode of this thing, somebody said Miata is always the answer. With all of my deviations, you know, I won't say it's the only answer. That's not fair to all the other great platforms that are out there. I was home um, for Christmas and drove my brother's C5Z06 around. That car is awesome. Totally gave me the fever for a C5Z, especially with the prices that they're selling at now. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, the Miata, there's just something to be said in the category of smiles per dollar, which is huge to me. I mean, I think about being out there. Like, you don't have to spend a ton of money. And, you know, this is a little bit of a deviation from the current question. But the the question that I get the most from enthusiasts that are not track guys is, why don't I have that kind of money? Like, why, how do you pay for all this track stuff? And I'm like, dude, it doesn't have to cost you a lot of money to do this. And so, you know, that means a lot of things. But the first thing to think about when you're thinking about a platform is the purchase price is one thing, but consumables can add up so quickly. I mean, you look at like tires and brakes and other things that go bad on a car. That's one of the places that the, you know, the Miata really exceeds, particularly when you take some weight out of them is things last forever, dude. I mean, like rotors, I don't think I've ever changed the front rotors on the Eliminator. We built that car in 2016. I've driven it hard, like, you know, for four or five seasons now. So that's, you, you know, that's, that's a huge part of it um, for me is, just a platform that's not going to drive you crazy. That's not going to drive your bank account crazy. That's let you. That's going to let you have a lot of fun. So, yeah, that's you know, you know that's been my experience with these cars, and that's why it was so hard to decide to sell that red car. But you, you know, for me, both of my cars are based on '95 Miata platforms. I can share parts. That's one spare's been. Doesn't matter which car I'm taking to the track. I get grab all the same stuff, all the same tools, and not to mention that there's one tool that's you know not a physical tool, but all of the knowledge. It's in my head, all the knowledge of this guy that's sitting across from me. You know, when we're at the track, you just have you just have a huge group of people to draw from, like all the Miata guys. Um, you know, like James Davis and I have shared parts and tools back and forth. Rick and I have shared parts and tools. 
I, I, you know, because I bring a truck and a trailer now, I try to load up with as many conceivable things as people could possibly need. What was it that failed on your car? It was like a a lower ball joint, and, and you I had, had the one. part, dude. Because yeah. I had just changed mine to the extended lower ball joints, and I'm like, you know what? This is going in the trailer as a spare because even if I don't need it, chances are somebody else will eventually, and it happened sooner than I expected. And it made all the difference. It, it, and that's the thing about running this platform that's incredibly common. It made the difference between me driving at Charlotte and me not driving at Charlotte. That would have been a ruined weekend. Yep. And it was saved by a ball joint in your trailer. Yep. Yep. So tacking on to that, and, and you talked about this with it doesn't have to cost a lot, but there's got to be people listening who are thinking, man, this guy had three track cars and he's got a Porsche and he's got a Lexus and he's got... One of the things that you and I have talked about, one is that you buy and sell right. So it doesn't cost a lot of money. And, and there's an art to that. Some of our community, um, I can think of a few people that, that flip cars and they've done very well um, and they've been fair about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you and I have talked about fielding three track cars and the, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, man, that'd be the dream. Three track cars. Talk a little bit about what the real reality of having three track cars is and what goes through your head every day you walk into that garage after an event and the things you're thinking about. Let me start with the upside of having more than one track car. doesn't have to be three, but even with two, there was an upside. And so that upside was, um, you know, when one car wasn't ready, I mean, you're doing this stuff, you know, you could be waiting on a part. You could be amidst a big project. You could be doing a, a turbo install. You could be doing a motor swap. So, you know, to me, there's been a real advantage in having two cars. You think about the two cars. The Miata that I bought originally, I paid $4,100 for, for a totally, totally track-ready car. And this guy had $10,000 in receipts. He tried going to the track and he said, hey, this isn't for me. I already had all the safety done. I had basic performance. And this was a car that was capable of, like, I remember my first day out in that car, I passed a C6 Corvette and I thought, okay, this is pretty good. And this wasn't like... An amp. This was at Nashville Super Speedway. I mean, like you can carry some speed, but I was able to pass and stay ahead of that car. So again, for four grand, I had a car that was, you know, really capable and more important than, you know, turning a fast lap time. It was just a ton of fun to drive. It was a great car to learn on. It was really rewarding and it was very, very forgiving, right? Like you make a little mistake. It was very easy to correct and get back in line. And then that Thunder Roadster Crawdini that I bought, I bought on, on bring a trailer for six grand. So if you're thinking about like a two-track car setup, if you have the space for it, for 10 grand, I would advocate that maybe it makes more sense to have two $5,000 track cars than one $10,000 track car. Now, you know, for the downsides, a space. That was a huge deal for me. We moved a couple years ago. You know, garage, I'm not going to lie, was a huge, huge factor for me. We wanted good school zones and I wanted a big old garage. And luckily we got both. The house that I bought has two garages. It's got a um, it's got a two car garage upstairs, and then a two car garage downstairs adjacent to the basement, which is kind of where the track cars go. But with three, that meant that one of those cars had to be out in the elements um, because both the Thunder Roadster and the Eliminator open cockpit cars. It had to be my green Miata, and that killed me, man. Like that's the car I've had the longest, and it's you know I go out there and I'm like, this is not. This is not good for this car. I mean, that was, it's not, the car's not perfectly watertight. And so I'd go out there. I mean, at one point, I think I just found some mold growing from all the water. It just like, the downside was like, it like, because the space was a challenge, it meant I had to move two cars to get the one I wanted out. Like when you get into that kind of automotive Jenga, 
A, it just makes it that much less enjoyable and puts up a barrier to being able to drive the car. And it means that cars don't get driven. I was having a conversation up in Nashville at a Cars and Coffee event over Christmas with a guy. And he was talking about, you know, he's only got a small garage in his house. And he's historically kept cars in an off-site location. And he says, you know what happens to those cars? They die. You never drive them because you go there to drive them. And then they're kind of like, I think I heard Doug DeMiro call it a point A to point A car. You don't go anywhere. Right? You go drive and then you come back to where you started and you just, you know, you're like, you got to be honest with yourself. Like you're, pro- you're probably not going to have time to do that as much as you think. So for me, that was the downside. The other downside is that's three cars worth of maintenance. You know, it's like to some degree, like that can be a benefit. It's like, oh, that car needs an oil change. I'll drive this one. But then sometimes it all hits the fan at the same time. And you just end up getting overwhelmed with maintenance spares right like every track car comes with a boatload of spares i was drowning in wheels and tires like every one of those cars i was running tens on the eliminator and but i couldn't fit the tens at least i didn't think on the miata so i had a set of nines for the track and then the uh the thunder roadster had a crazy offset like i had to run zero offset wheels and a one inch spacer to get them you know out to the fenders but it ran these crazy you know crazy offset wheels when i got it so I just was, you know, there was no room to do anything. It made it a nightmare to do anything because there just wasn't any room. So for me, like, yeah, adding that third car, that third track car was really kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. And it didn't, it just didn't add to the joy. It took away some of the enjoyment, which at the end of the day, like, that is what we are all here to do. Maybe there's somebody out there in Jay Zilla podcast land that is using this as a ladder into real racing. Hey, you know, good luck to you. That's awesome. I hope you make it. It's never going to be that for me. Like I've been doing HPDEs since 2004. This is where I am. I, you know, maybe at some point in the future, I'll decide that timed, you know, time trials, uh, wheel to wheel is what I want to do. Um, but I'm just not there yet, man. For me, I'm having a ton of fun doing what I'm doing. And I think that's totally okay to stay where you are. No doubt. So you mentioned earlier in the episode, but uh, let's kind of go back. And, and actually, um, James Marcelana mentioned this. Um, you're one of those G J Zilla guys, and so why don't you tell about how uh, how you kind of got involved with the group as one of the one of the founding fathers, so to speak, and and your uh, history with the group? Yeah, man, I think it it all really started on a little web forum called MX5 Atlanta. Some of you guys know that James has a history with Miatas. He was a Miata guy when when we met, and man, James, you know this has been this has been 12 years ago. And James was like, you know, he's changed a little bit, like, but he was the prankster, man. He was like, he was the one that would come into a thread and like drop a bomb and then sit back and use the little popcorn emoji, like, just like, let's see where this goes. So he was kind of the prankster. Everybody knew James, you know, back then, just like they do now. Um, But, you know, James started putting together those track days first for his bachelor party. For life me, I can't remember if I was at that one. But I searched my email the other day, it kind of in preparation for this. I'm like, when was the first Jay Zilla track day for me? And it popped up like 07 or 09. It was a thank you message from James. So, you know, thinking back to those days, what was different? I mean, dude, we were a little talent. We thought we were in the big leagues, you know, we we're at a racetrack. You know, that is not to discredit Little Talladega at all. That is an awesome track. It's a great place to get it, um, to get a start. I think that's where Rick got his start, probably his first handful of track days. Very low stakes, plenty of runoff room, no real elevation changes. Um, and just, a, you know, it's like it's like the family environment. I mean, you know, when the old guard was running that place, the Lawrence and uh, 
David. David Upchurch. Yeah, I mean, those guys, like, just very casual. They just, they knew how to run a track day. They were very focused on customer service. But, you know, it'd be, it'd be 10 or 14 of us out there, a lot of Miatas, you know. Then, um, yeah, I think one of the first track days, it's, it's mainly Miatas. And then John DeBarros and his freaking F430 challenge. And that car did not come off the track. I think he invited a bunch of clients out there. And he just went and ripped the entire day. And it was one of the most amazing things to watch. And if you're out there at a stock horse Miata, you're just watching your rear view mirrors. Thankfully, it was yellow. That day still pops up. I think I probably loaded pictures on Facebook. So every year, it'll pop up and remind me. But that was a really cool experience. And, you know, when I think about then, I think about how much has changed. Like, the events are massive. We're at better tracks. Like... He added, well, the food really wasn't any different. Yeah, so I mean, like, like those things are just more people. When I think about what hasn't changed, it's so much. Like the culture, he nailed that from the beginning. Like I use this analogy, and I think James brought it up on his podcast. I talk about house party versus bar, right? Like you roll into a bar, you're with your friends, but you don't know any of these dudes, right? Like somebody steps on your Jordans, you're like, let's go, man. Like you know, like you don't owe these people anything. And that's why people get in fights and all sorts of stuff happens at a bar. It's just like, you know, it's a, it's like you're with your friends and you don't care about these other people. You go to a house party, it's very different, right? Because you're like, hey, I know some people here, but everybody that I don't know, I know knows the people that I know. At the very least, they know the host. And so you approach it a little bit differently, right? Now, all of a sudden, somebody like steps on your shoes or hits on your girl. You're like a little bit more willing to forgive it. That was always the Jayzilla culture, which is like, it wasn't like adversarial. It was like everybody wanted to know about each other's cars. When anybody's cars broke, everybody was out there jumping in, trying to help each other and fix them. Like all of the same elements of the culture that I see today, the camaraderie, the friendship, just the culture of cooperation, the like, you know, people aren't going to march off and, you know, see the, I want to talk to the manager. Like, you know, this guy wouldn't let me pass. Like, Drivers handle things with each other. Like it's very self-regulating and policing. And like half the time I've seen those conversations happen where somebody has a foul on the track and it needs to get talked about afterwards. Like those two people end up being friends afterwards. So, I mean, it's, um, you know, it's cool to see the things that haven't changed. The food, James has always known food is a way to people's heart and is also a way to get people to commute. Like in those early little tally track days, James was flipping burgers. Dude, he would show up in the Volvo wagon with a grill in the back and James would feed us. He brought chips. He brought cases of water. I mean, that Volvo showed up full and it left empty. And what that meant is when we weren't on the track, we were all sitting around together and we were communing. And that's how I got to know guys like Yancey and Brian and, you know, all these guys that, that come out to the events and still do for the most part, because we were all sitting around in camping chairs, talking shop and getting to know each other and busting jokes so, you know, as with as much as has changed about Jayzilla, I would say the majority of things have stayed the same. And to me, that's what's going to keep me coming back year after year. Gotcha, Rick. Well, why don't you, uh, Rick, you have anything else before we kind of uh, start to get in the lightning round? Well, we got to do the lightning round, but I want to hear Nick has Nick's got a lot of track time, like a lot of our community. And I want to know the highlights. There's got to be. We haven't talked a lot about close calls and fun adventures. You said you don't go too off. What's your biggest oh shit moment where you actually saved it? Oh yeah, dude. No, this is this one um, doesn't take any time at all to think about. I uh, I had always heard that when grass is wet, 
that there's not much traction. In fact, I think I heard somebody call it the ice capades. And I thought, man, that's, you know, okay, that's like, sounds like an exaggeration. Um, so I, I decided to try it out for myself, not intentionally, of course, at Atlanta Motor Speedway. If you guys have never done the Atlanta Motor Speedway Roval, it's not, you know, that different than what we do at Charlotte every year. You get out on the banking, there's a bus stop, and then there's kind of like a, a road course turnoff through the infield. And I was, I was kind of coming off what would be like, I don't know, like, was that like turns three and four at Charlotte? Like, where you're heading back in towards the infield, and there's a big flat 180, kind of just like at Charlotte. And I just overcooked it, man. I was in the Miata. I was carrying too much speed. It was a little bit wet, but it was that wet where it had started to dry up, right? It's still damp, and you get overconfident. And that's exactly what happened to me. And, you know, I'm turning in, I'm starting to push. I let off the gas. I'm trying to save it and, you know, keep the car cool. But as soon as that first wheel got off, dude, there's no saving it. I mean, it just, I mean, the car starts spinning beautiful, you know, spins like 10 out of 10 from the USA judge, but there was no stopping. Like, I didn't feel like I was scrubbing any speed at all. And I'm heading towards the infield road, which is where people are coming and going from the event, I see like a Corolla or something coming that way. And I'm going, please, God, no, like, let them see me before I, you know, see them with some car contact. And I stopped like, you know, like it felt like 10 feet short. It was probably 30 yards, um, but it was still, it was terrifying. (laughs) I hope to never relive that again. That was, that was about my closest call. So you do know just how slippery grass can be. I never want to, I never want to drive on white grass again. Yeah. It's very slippery. Take my word for it. There you go. We don't need to try it now. Don't try it. All right, Gino. Well, let's do the lightning round. <laughs> All right. Well, so Rick, I know you got some questions, so we'll kind of uh, maybe uh, kind of hand it off here and there. So, um, Nick, I don't know if you're big in the in the sports car racing, but one of our, our normal questions is: is uh, you are allowed a car entry um, for either the Rolex Twenty Four or Petit Le Mans, and you have to pick a four driver team of only Jay Zilla drivers. Who are your four drivers you pick and uh, maybe a little bit of why you would pick them and you cannot be one of the drivers? I, I've heard this question before. It's a tough one. So, you, you know, for me, I, man, I feel like, I feel like we're probably not going to win. So like, I'm probably just going to put my homies on the team. Like I told you before, we trade seriously, probably between for the past, what has it been? Four or five years? At least. No, I think it's been since April 2016. It was after a track night in America event. We create a little Facebook messenger group, and it's like me, Rick, Stu Biggs, Michael Lauder. We added Chris Peters and Sean later. But we try, I mean, we're just like, we're it drives my wife crazy. She's like, who the hell are you talking to? We called ourselves the the OG East Cobb Miata gang. And we're just talking off the hook. Like, I, I just struggle to think of something more fun than a group of us four jokers, whoever could get a hall pass likely, going out to Petit and just running hard. I know that's not in the spirit of the question. You know, if we're talking about capability, you know, there, there are so many good Jay Zilla drivers that are out there. People that I've watched grow, that's been part of the fun of being part of this organization for such a long time is – like people change, like people are like, I've seen progress even just within the past year of people that have, you know, that have gotten really, really good as they've, you know, they've focused on themselves. iRacing, I think is a great tool for development. They're getting more seat time. There's no replacement for actual seat time. Um, you, you know, and then there's some people that are just stars, man. They come off and their lap times and everybody's going, how'd you do that? 
Patrick Darty's a guy like I, I like him on the track and off the track. And I think, you know, his, his, his who he is in each of those places makes it easier to like the other. He's a great driver. He's just, you know, an even better dude. And I think it'd be fun to run a race team with Patrick. Um, Eric Olson is a great driver. I've loved watching that car. It's just such a, you, you know, it's one of those like David and Goliath. It's this little MR2. People don't know what it is. It's a Frankenstein with this Honda motor. And it's just, you know, he's had a ton of fun in that car. He recovered from, you, you know, people that listen to his podcast will remember he had a bad day at the track, turn one at Road Atlanta. And, you know, the dude, it's his daily driver. I think it was at that point. He's bought a truck. I just respect that kind of hustle, dude, to be out there in your daily driver and to, you know, to, to twist up the tub and to retub it yourself in your garage. Um, I think he said his wife and him were sharing a car. Like those kind of stories, man, are just kind of like, it's amazing. I mean, it just shows the capability of the type of people that we have coming out to, to Jay Zilla events. Um, so yeah, you know, that's, um, you know, I, I'd probably pick from that group of people based on who was free that weekend. Personally, me, like, I, I don't know. I go to Petite, but I just like pounding beers and watching. I'd probably be doing the same down in the pits. I, I don't think I'd be of much help to these guys. I'd just be, I'd just be partying. It'd be a good time. Gotcha. So, um, all right. So some Jay Zilla stuff here. Um, and you know, you're, you're kind of one of the, the original guys. So I'll, I'll expand this question a little bit for you in particular. Um, favorite Jay Zilla moment in 2019 and then favorite moment ever. If you could pick two moments from one from this year uh, or, or 19 and one from your entirety uh, that you could hold on to, what would, be, what would they be? Yep. This year, God, you know, the Charlotte event stands out, and I think that's almost become a cliche answer. But I think there's good reason for anybody that's never been to Charlotte. Please, you owe it to yourself. At least go once. That is a really neat event. Um you know, there's just a lot to like about Charlotte. I mean, racing under the lights is an incredible experience. I didn't go the first year, and I made sure to go the second year based on everything that I heard from people that came back the first year. And, you know, there's no guarantee that any of these track days will repeat. Like, I mean, I I, I wasn't sure that we'd do Charlotte again this year. So don't just think these things are going to continue on into perpetuity. I think we've seen that in the bigger racetrack environment, Laguna Seca's in the, in the crosshairs. I mean, I, I you know, if you're going to do this stuff, do it now. Do it while you have the opportunity. So yeah, Charlotte stood out. I think there's a lot of reasons why. I mean, like, you know, Charlotte is weird for a racetrack because you're kind of in the middle of a lot of stuff. So that really facilitates like people going out, getting food together, having a few beers. Bench racing is one of the most fun elements of racing. And we did some of that over the past two years there. So for 2019, Charlotte was definitely that for me. That was a very memorable event. Um, all time, Hutchinson Island was incredible, man. And I, you know, I struggled to say exactly why, but, um, I think it was a couple things. One is nobody had been there. Like we were pioneers, man. We're down there. Like, I, I think when we were doing the track walk, I mean, everybody's kicking, you know, stones off of the track and pulling weeds out and we're getting this thing ready to run. But that idea of exploring, like that just never happens. Like you're not going to show up at Road Atlanta and run an entire day with a group of people that have never been there. That's just, you know, I don't know how that would ever be be put together. It's more likely you can have the opposite, which is you show up at a track and you're the only person who it's your first time there. But for all of us, pretty sure it was all of our first time there. The second thing that was so cool, again, back to the camaraderie is the night before the event. So I guess we did the event on Saturday, Friday night, you know, a lot of people were staying at the Westin. 
We all jumped on a boat because if you're not familiar with the terrain down there in Savannah, this, this track is right in the middle of downtown. You have downtown Savannah, which is on the river, across from the river. There's only really one thing on that little island, which I guess is Hutchinson Island, is a Westin. And they have this private racetrack that, you know, it's kind of like it's, I think it's just been dormant for a number of years since it was built in the early 90s, which as I understand it was for like a cart race or something like that. I think Helio Castro Nevis won the only race that was ever there. And they've done HSR races there periodically. I don't know a ton about the history. But, dude, we all jumped on a ferry that the Westin provides. It takes us into downtown. And I think we had 30 of us, 40 of us at dinner. Like, I remember I invited Patrick Darty. I don't think he knew a lot of those dudes. I think that might have been where he met, like, he met Ryan and, like, you know, who became his, like, arch nemesis track guy, Ryan Powell. They both had like kind of similarly equipped S2000s and like that was just so fun watching those guys go back and forth, including there at Hutchinson Island. I think there were some great pictures of them chasing each other, but that was a really cool event. Um, yeah, for all those reasons. I mean, we just got some good time both on and off the track. I'd love to go back there again and share that experience with the new crop of Gzilla drivers that didn't have the opportunity to do that four years ago. Plus, that would be the only racetrack where you've ever blown a stop sign taking a corner. <laughs> what, what Rick's referring to, and you know, I, I don't know why they've done this. They've tarted up the whole track. I guess they're like city streets and they're maintained by the city. They don't go anywhere. It's like a big, but you can actually drive it as if it was a city street. And to Rick's point, that includes, uh, you know, like wayfinding, like there's stop signs and, you know, some curbage and some other things to help you find your way around this quote unquote street. It's pretty wild. So, uh, Gino, I've got a question for Nick, and, and this goes all the way back to how I met Nick. So I met Nick as my uh, parts crack dealer back in the day when I first decided to turbo a Miata because Nick was the OG in Atlanta. He had the parts, and I'm uh, frugal. We use a nice word. And Nick had a turbo system. And so uh, I trooped over to his house uh, down in the ghetto. Down in the ghetto, dude. At the time. Yep. Yes. And uh, met Nick, who I had known from the MX-5 Atlanta forums, and bought a turbo from him. And uh, the, that whole adventure kind of spiraled. He ended up lending me some parts, uh, a tuning computer, and some other things. But that all took back to, and Nick, I got to give you credit for the, the Jayzilla community and the mentality. You brought me into the community. You said, hey, there's this cool thing we're doing. You should really check it out. And you're the reason I met James through that first track event. Uh, but that being said, what you are you are kind of the face and the the friendly face in the pits. So, what would you say to that new person that's at their first event? They're kind of shy. They don't really know how to talk to anybody. They don't want to look dumb because you know they don't really know what they're doing. What would you say to them about meeting people at these events? It's easy to think that you know when you show up somewhere and you don't know anybody. This 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 transcends Jayzilla events. I mean, this is like you just started your new job. You're the new kid at school. Like, it doesn't matter where you are. You show up, you know, you move to a new town. Just talk to people, man. Like, it's amazing how somebody can look so serious. They're torquing their lug nuts. And it's like you say, hey, nice car. And they light up, right? Like, who doesn't smile when somebody says, nice car, or ask you about your build? How long have you had it? I mean, that's, you know, there were times that, you know, I've shown up at track days and not known anybody and you know just talking to folks heck i mean G gino's done a great job of that gino i've been doing this for 10 years with the jay zilla family i should know everybody gino showed up what a year and a half two years ago he, he's like the the man he's of, uh, of jay zilla for real he's got his own own dang shirt 
but yeah, I'd say for, you know, for new folks, one, one great way to get to know people is find people with the platform that you're using, right? So if you show up and you're a civic guy, go talk to Val Bonchev or like anybody else that's out there in a civic, right? Like pick their brain, get them to ride with you. Like that's how you build these relationships. I loved, you know, I listened to uh, Jack Fu's podcast a couple of weeks ago when it came out. And Gino, I knew you guys had grown close over, over the past year. I had no idea how that happened. I thought, oh, maybe these guys work together. Maybe they know each other from something. And I love, you know, Jack's approach was like, well, that guy in the, in the two looks like he's doing pretty good things. Like, let me just holler at him and go ride with him and look where that ended up. So again, like, man, I, I'd say 99% of people in the Jayzilla paddock are approachable. I can't account for the 1%. I'm only going to call it 1% because maybe you approach somebody, maybe they're having a bad day. Whatever. Don't let that discourage you because the next person is probably going to be twice as friendly as that person that, you know, wasn't very warm to you. The only words of caution I give you is every once in a while, like I'm getting ready to go out. That looks like, like you know what that looks like. It's usually a mad dash because we're all BSing in the tent. Then somebody goes, oh, this is the last call to grid. And we've got to put on, let's see, I put on my head sock and then the Hans and then the helmet, and then zip up the suit, or maybe put it back on, depending how hot it's been. Then gloves, then armor strengths, then my window net. I'll turn on the GoPro and the aim, and then and then I'm ready to go, and I'm already late. So, you, you know, that, if you see somebody scurrying around like that, that may not be the best time. When somebody comes back in, actually, a lot of times, that's like one of my favorite times. Like, maybe I have a few things. I might be checking tire temps or tire pressures, but that can be kind of a good time. Because I'm obviously on a huge adrenaline high. I'm like, what's up, bro? Like, good to meet you, you know? Like, you can say you saw me out there or something, and I'll probably light up. So anyway, yeah, that's the other thing. If if you see me, just come find me. Like, I'll be your buddy. So if, if anybody out there in Jayzilla land doesn't know anybody, come find Nick. If you don't know who I am, just ask somebody, and, you know, eventually somebody will point me out. Look for the mint green Miata or the jungle gym with wheels. That's right. It's or, pretty simple. Or whatever I buy impulsively in three weeks on bring a trailer. That too. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's all good to be friendly and all that, but uh, I have a question for you. Um, and it has to do with rivalries. Who is the one guy you're out there at any given event and you always end up together and you, whenever you get a point by from him, you feel like your day is made. Who's that guy for you? We all have one guy, bro. This is, this is so easy because he's sitting right across from me and he acknowledged this on episode one in his podcast. And it's just so ridiculously accurate. It's funny. So I, you know, I was Rick's crack dealer. I sold him a bunch of turbo parts, but Rick didn't quite have the formula yet. I mean, he was still getting seat time. That car was heavy. I mean, you were running full interior, a bunch of stuff. And I don't think you ever bought real tires. I was running Yokohama S drive all season, 350 treadwear. It was a joke. And Rick, Rick didn't understand why he couldn't keep up with me at, at AF. And I wasn't about to tell him. He had, he had to learn a few things on his own. I couldn't give away all the secrets. But dude, you know when it really started for me and Rick, he built the Exocet and I built the Eliminator. And we just have some of the most epic memories and video to back it all up. Like there's, there's this photo that this guy, Keith Keplinger took at the Mustang Club event, May 2017. Six, yeah, 17. 2017. It was May 2017. Yeah, I remember that. Dude, it's Rick and me crossing the line at AMP and the line doesn't matter. You know, it looks like to, to, to the, to the person viewing the picture who doesn't know anything about the context, it looks like a photo finish of an actual race 
you couldn't call it. I mean, this picture is just like, we're just right there at the checkers. I don't even remember who's passing who, but that picture is iconic in a sense that it represents a like two year period, three year period of Rick and me going back and forth. We'd come off the track, heat up me by a couple tenths. I'd go out the next time I'd get him by a tenth. I mean, we just couldn't wait to go share data and we made each other a lot better as a result. Do yourself a favor, like find that person for you, like go out there in the group, try lining up behind different people, like talk to people and figure out who's close to you because then you can learn together. You can start a data sharing group. We've got this Dropbox site again around the camaraderie for Jayzilla where a bunch of drivers are all sharing data. Like in the past couple months, like I've shared Eric Olson and I, we were joking. I think, yeah, he brought this up on the podcast around you know, like at Barber, like I said my time, then, he, you know, he had his, and then I was actually, my mind had rounded mine up. And like, he just went back, I think. I haven't given my high five yet, but this will be a public high five. I think the last time he was at Barber for Friendsgiving, he got a new PB. So now I got to go chase that. But yeah, Rick, Rick and I is an easy one. Eric is another one. I think he mentioned that on his podcast. We, we've been, I mean, it's been probably four years now um, that Eric and I, we've been, um, you know, depending on the track, depending on which cars we're driving, like usually a pretty darn good match. And like when I see Eric off in the distance, like, believe me, that's some extra motivation. Like I am chasing those extra tents at that point. So if Rick gives me a point by, if Eric gives me a point by, uh, you know, I definitely feel like I've earned it. And then, you know, there's one more before, before either Rick or Eric, you know, my brother and I, we have a healthy sibling rivalry and it's unbelievable, like kind of just like me and Rick, like sometimes we'll be driving totally different cars and our times will just be really well matched for each other. Or like Charlotte this year, like I'm in the eliminator, so I'm losing a bunch to him on the straights and then making it up in the corners. And we're just, you know, we're both, you know, kind of staying close in total lap times. But my brother and I are the same way, man. I, I bought that Miata. He was tracking a 993 at that point. And again, we were just always right there together. I remember at one point, one of the corner workers called in and was like, Hey, we got to separate these guys. They're just like, they're just back and forth. And Tower is our friend, um, Janet Schuster. It's like, they're brothers. I know them. They're good. Like, they know what they're doing. Uh, and then, you know, even now, like, he's in a C5Z06. I'm in either the Eliminator. I think last year at Barber, I was in the Thunder Roadster. He was in the Z06. And we ended with it. I mean, again, with intense. I couldn't even tell you. I think he only ran a half day the second day. And after he left, I beat his time, which is a little bit unfair. But those, you know, those have been, I mean, I've been doing this long enough to have more than one rival. Like those three definitely stand out as people that I feel like they have a good rivalry. Like you couldn't call somebody a rival if you've never passed them and they've never passed you. I probably, between those three people, have dozens, if not, I mean, probably hundreds of passes back and forth with Rick. I couldn't tell you the score. Well, you know what? When we're retired in a nursing home, Rick and I are going to be at the same nursing home. We're going to queue up YouTube and we're going to count because I think we're probably running GoPro for every session out there. We're going to count every pass and we're finally going to settle the score. And then we're going to race our wheelchairs and uh, even this thing out. That's been absolutely the most fun growth I've had at Jayzilla was the time we spent chasing each other in those lightweight Miatas. And two, as Nick said, it doesn't have to be the same car. Two completely different configurations. One with a lot of power and one with gobs of grip. One driver probably much better than the other. I'll leave that to your imagination, but, uh, you know, it, it, um, the growth you can get from having a, having a person to play with, to chase, to run with. And that's been magic. If you can find that no matter what, it can be in green group that that person just happens to be the same speed and you both improve together. That's what it's all about. 
All right, so rolling on here, Nick. So tomorrow, James goes on vacation and leaves you in charge of the group. What is one executive decision you make, whether you sign a track, you add an open passing group? What's one decision you'd make if you had the power? I'd take us back to Hutchinson. I'd just go recklessly sign a contract with those guys. I know James has tried, and he's trying to work the numbers on that, and I get it. I mean, this thing has to make um, business sense as well. But I want to go back, man. I mean, it was that time of year, too. We did it just before Christmas. Savannah was nice and warm. I mean, that that would be that would be fun to go do. I think I'd also get us up to the National Corvette Museum. I think there's enough interest. For those of you that have not been to that track, that is just a phenomenal, phenomenal track. It's something like, is it 26 turns? What, Atlanta is 12? Like, it, you have to commit it to memory. I mean, it's one of those tracks you definitely want to watch a ton of video in advance. Even better if you can find it somewhere on a sim or something. I don't know if that's possible, but... Um, I'd love to get up there. James, if you're listening, take us up there, man. We'll we'll follow you wherever you go. That's not too far. That's not too far for us, man. We're a couple hours away. We'd love to get up there. All right. So one car in the group that's not your own that you would like the opportunity to drive. What's what's the one car that's out there that you're like, man, I'd like to drive that car? That's a good question. You know, since buying the 911... I'm kind of feeling like a Porsche dude, you know, and it's funny for me. I always thought the Ferraris were the dream car and I still really very much like Ferraris. I think James mentioned that, uh, oh, I, I forget his name, Matt, the, um, the retrofit source guy brought out the 355. That has been like a bucket list car for me. The 355s, 360s, 430s and 450. I mean, that's, you know, those, the mid-engine V8 Ferraris, for me, I mean, to drive one of those on track, I just, you know, I know it would be a phenomenal experience. I also, you know, having driven a bike-powered cars, I watched the Primal videos, and those guys in the Radical, they're having more fun than anybody, dude. I think it's like Patrick Wilmot will post these videos of those guys chasing each other. Rick, it reminds me of us, but like on fast forward, like they're out there turning laps in the low 20s. And they're maybe even the high teens, man. I mean, they're just, they're so fun to watch. And for me, the purity of that experience, like the Radical seems like a car that's within reach of a lot of people, meaning like within their skill level. And I haven't driven one, so, you know, maybe some guys can correct me. But it's not an insane amount of power. Like, it feels like it's, you know, you're not going to give yourself enough rope to hang yourself. Like, you're probably just going to have a blast. I, I would love to, and I might consider doing that here in the next year going out and getting a seat with those guys because really that's, you know, that's kind of a bucket list car for me too. And then the NPO1s, you know, David Chow had that one. I remember AJ drove it in Road Atlanta. I was so jealous. There's one on Bring a Trailer right now and Johnny Kachowski's like threatening to buy it. Apparently that's kind of on his target list. Sitting at 13,000 right now and expected to go much higher. I think those cars are like 75,000 to build. But, you know, you're kind of probably getting a sense of what I'm into, man, at like, lightweight, high strong, you know, high RPM screaming power. That just seems like a formula for a lot of fun for me. All right, so that's the challenge. You, me, and Gino, session rentals in a radical. We've covered half a day so far. We'll find a couple other guys and we'll go for best time. Oh, bro, I'm in. All right. I am in. I put my money on Gino. <laughs> <laughs> and, and James will kill me. Yeah, and James will kill me if I don't mention, uh, but yeah, James will have those available for rent next year at AMP. And I think all the tracks, but I, I know definitely for AMP. So we, we've got to throw down and, and have a little bit of a good time in that. But gosh, I, I just looked at the clock. We're, we're over, uh, over our timer. What do you got uh, for him, uh, Mr. Tengard? 
Man, let's wrap with the question that everybody gets, Gino. It's all yours. All right. So if you had one message to the Jay Zilla family, what would it be uh, from Mr. Nick Thompson? My message would be, that's a big question. I, you know, I would just beat the drum on seat time, which is, you know, I, as I talk to people, I mean, as you can imagine, doing this with James for almost 10 years now, maybe more than 10 years, I've lost count. I've seen a lot of faces come and go. And when I catch up with the dudes that don't come out anymore, I never feel good about the answers that I get. And it's like, you know, you and only you are in control of your life and your destiny. And when I hear stuff like, oh, you know, like, um, it's too expensive. And I look at the car you're driving and the consumables and I'm like, you know, like you're in a car that costs, you know, and I loved Fred Hazelton's podcast and Rick said something that I've been saying for a long time. Your nicest track car is your first track car, right? Like, and that was me. I showed up in an M3. That was my daily driver. And I thought, this is awesome. And then I bought a $4,000 Miata that was about the price of what like, you know, a decent suspension and maybe like a roll bar and harnesses would have cost for the M3. And I had an entire car and all that stuff was already done. And I was out there turning laps in a car that, you know, wouldn't have ended my world if I had wrecked it. So just be cognizant about your situation. You know, like Fred's situation, driving a ZL1 Camaro, it's an awesome car. He loved it. But dude, I mean, the dollar signs add up quickly. I mean, there's the car itself. There's the entry fees. There's the track insurance, which outweighs the cost of the entry fees. Then there's all the consumables. So when I hear answers like that, like I love that a guy like Fred didn't come out and go, this is too expensive. I'm packing up and I'm going home and I'm just going to drive this car on the street. Fred just got rid of that car, man. He's going all in on an 80s BMW that's, you know, that's glorified crap can racing. And I guarantee you'll see an even bigger smile on Fred's face than you have in, in you know, the past two years. And that's saying a lot. And he may not be going as fast, but he will be learning tremendously more. He'll be able to push it harder. And he'll just be having a lot of fun. So to me, you know, that's my message, which is if you want to do this stuff, like figure out a way that you can do it you know, such that, um, you know, that it doesn't, that it doesn't mess the rest of your life up, man. If it's, uh, you know, if you're like me and you've got little kids, like, yeah, this takes me away a couple weekends out of the year. I make sure to be like hyper present when I am there, spend tons of time with my kid. Like just cause you know, I know these years are, are precious and they're very limited, but that allows me to, you know, continue to do the track days by making sure that I'm fulfilling those commitments when I have the time. So yeah, just, Get out there and drive, man. Keep coming out. This is, uh, you know, this is a lot of fun and you're only young once. Well, Nick, you know, I, I tell you, we're, we're going to have to have you back on because I feel like we could go for another two or three hours. But for uh, the sake of, uh, of the listeners and doing one uh, podcast at a time, I'm going to go ahead and uh, thank you for coming on. You know, you're an incredible ambassador for Jay Zola. Um, everybody, you know, that, that knows you. Uh, says you're you know one of the the best people in the paddock and uh, i've gotten to spend some time with you this year and i know in the coming years we're, we will through uh just because of your relationship with rick so i appreciate you coming on rick uh, do you have anything you have before we wrap up here well i just want to thank nick for coming on this was a lot of fun and it was a long time coming and for our listeners thank you guys for listening that's why we do this it's a lot of fun uh but it's all about you guys and hopefully you enjoy the extended play for monday and you get to listen on the way in and the way home from work. <laughs> That's correct. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that concludes episode number 14. And uh, I guess we'll see everyone at the death of winter. See you, see you at there. the track. <laughs>